Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. On this week's New Statesman podcast... We discuss the leaders' debates. Anoush reports from her trip to East Devon. And you ask us, why can't Labour and the Lib Dems just do a pact? So Anoush, we had the first televised debate, a one-on-one debate between Jeremy Corbyn, watched by about six and a half million. I imagine that that will probably be more by the time that most of our listeners listen to this, because there'll be some people watching it through catch-up. But, you know, through, between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, what were your impressions of it? I was watching it while I was out in Devon doing some reporting, speaking to voters and following around various candidates. And um, what was really interesting is that all of the reflections that a lot of people were having of the debate on the night were just not at all reflected in the people that I was speaking to and on the campaign trail. So one of the examples is they had this exchange, a bizarre exchange over anti-Semitism, I thought, where Boris Johnson basically sort of laid into Jeremy Corbyn for it, but then said, even worse, which uh, yeah, is that... like, what? Even worse? His Brexit plan is slightly different from your Brexit plan. Even worse than like race yeah. hate. Um, yeah, so well. I thought that was very bizarre. But, you know, that was one of the key exchanges. No one really seems to bring up that on the doorstep people have a negative opinion of Jeremy Corbyn but they don't that's not usually what they bring up about it similarly Boris Johnson used the whole debate I thought just to repeat his lines about Brexit which obviously if someone has a message they want to deliver then that's no bad way of doing it really is it using a TV debate that lots of people are watching to to make that point but equally on the doorstep get Brexit done so while the Conservative candidate in East Devon was telling me everyone was saying that to him I didn't hear that once from people and they had to be really sort of dragged out of their shells to talk about Brexit because they're so fed up with it and the views are very diverse and this is you know a constituency that's been conservative for over 150 years and there's a lot of churn in people's views like that this was the only place I've been so far where some people were saying on the doorstep that they actually wanted it revoked so it was interesting really to sort of contrast political reality in one part of the country with sort of the air war if you if you want to put it like that yeah, I thought it's what I did think that really the only revealing moment in a truly terrible debate in terms of its format and its approach was 
the and even worse he's bad <laughs> on Brexit and he's just like well that's I mean it's, it's not particularly surprising to me and I do think a lot of ink has been spilt by people about well why does why does the Labour's anti-Semitism problem not move votes mm. I mean one bluntly it would completely reorient my sense of politics and my view of you know I mean, essentially, it would completely change my attitude to Zionism if I believed for a moment that the non-Jews could reliably be expected <laughs> yeah. to vote. I've just, that's always been my assumption about a majority's predilection to vote within the interests of, of ethnic minorities in their heart. But, um, of course, people don't think it is important when the body language of the main party criticising other party for it is quite visibly in so many different ways basically says we don't really care about this mm, yeah. you know you, you see it with the way that in pmqs under theresa may it was basically her in emergency break glass and go why haven't you fixed this institutional problem yeah and you saw that yesterday was like well but look come on isn't the really big problem actually your brexit policy and people do take their cues from political leaders and seeing as you have a situation where one party is profoundly unbothered by it for one reason and the other party is visibly profoundly unbothered by it for another <laughs> of course most voters are going to be profoundly unbothered by it yeah but that was kind of the only the only bit which did what a debate ought to do, which is reveal something yeah. about a pol- political party. The mask um, slips. Yeah, I just thought I wasn't about to say the still format was designed to produce good theatre, but it didn't. Pro- it wasn't even good theatre. It was just utterly bizarre. This kind of weird sort of kind of continued chivying along of, you know, I'm sorry. I just think if your debate format creates a situation where not once but twice. And maybe it was that they realised having bailed Johnson out by going, oh, no, we need to move on from the question about the detail of your hospital plans. They then felt they had to bail Corbyn out when it was like, but look, is the free movement of people going to continue or not? So I have no idea if it was like referee makes mistake for one team, realises they have to make another mistake for other team in order to not be criticised at the final whistle kind of thing, or if it was we have a terrible format designed around chivying people along. Mm. Boris Johnson seemed to realise, I think about 20 minutes in, that because of the chivying along, if it felt that a question was going to be difficult, he, he deliberately went over time, I think, you know, in his opening re- reply to the question. I mean, I don't know about you, but I just thought that everything about it, so if you didn't have the misfortune to watch it, right, the style of the questions which came from the audience and were mainly of the kind of like, why are you so rubbish? Mm. And it's just like, well, that's... No one struggles to answer. Yeah, if you if you as a politician are so inept that when someone goes, can we trust you, you are fl- floored by that question. <laughs> it's not just you shouldn't be in politics. You shouldn't be able to vote. There are <laughs> yeah, like there are chimpanzees who are who are better equipped to decide our destiny than a politician who cannot go. Well, of course, I can be trusted. Yeah. Um, I I know what you mean about those questions. They are not enlightening and politicians are obviously adept at answering them. But I do think they they do give voice to what a lot of people have been saying out and about on the campaign trail. So in a way, you know, that will perhaps speak to people who are watching the debate from home about their own feelings about these politicians. There's a lot of anger and sort of frustration and that's leading to people saying that they might not vote this time. But on the other hand, while voters, some voters are saying that, 
a lot of voters are saying, I haven't made up my mind yet. You know, what is their policy on this? What are they doing about this local issue? I think a lot of people in this election, if they do go and vote, are going to be making up their minds last minute. And that means that those kind of questions drowning out, like you say, drawing out the policies of each politician are really unhelpful because lots of people will have been watching that thinking, oh, actually, what what is that party's policy about? What are they doing about wind farms or something? Yeah. Uh, whatever's sort of interesting to their local area. And they didn't find out any of that stuff at all, not just on Brexit, but on everything else as well. And I think that's letting people down who bothered to sort of tune into that debate. And I wonder if it will just lead to more apathy. Yeah, I do think, I think the number one thing about this election campaign, which is depressing me at a professional level, is the astonishing failure on the part of our trade to remotely even try and inform people about, right, this is an election which our economic model is on the ballot, right? Mm -hmm. Then if you are a manufacturing company and Jeremy Corbyn wins, that has huge implications for how you arrange yourself, right? You will have new requirements in terms of share issues, new requirements in terms of workplace democracy, new requirements in terms of the menopause, new requirements in terms of the gender pay gap. A whole slew of things will, will change how you operate. If you are a manufacturing company and Boris Johnson wins, his Brexit deal, his preferred end state, presupposes the end of you as a firm, right? Now, maybe there are benefits that can be, you know, accrued elsewhere to make up from that through these, you know, all singing, all dancing trade deals. But Boris Johnson's preferred policy destination assumes that those manufacturing companies will go, right? That is the kind of, you know, Patrick Minford, the economist and mm. Brexiteers love to wheel out. And yet somehow, despite the fact that he will openly and happily say to any journalist, of course, you see that thing called the manufacturing sector, I'm afraid it'll have to go. And I just think I almost wouldn't care what the reaction of people who worked in or ran manufacturing companies was to that choice, whether it was well, I guess I'd better, like, you know, get a little yellow diamond by my Twitter handle and, like, go around <laughs> saying ahead the enemies of Joe Swinson. Or if it was, you know, I've got to vote Corbyn to, to stop us leaving the customs union. Or if it was, I've got to vote Boris Johnson to stop myself having all of these additional requirements on me. Mm. Right, fine. I, I, I would actually... Uh, because at least I would feel that we had in any way tried to convey a huge amount is up for grabs. And beyond doing this kind of like, you know, very like Sky Sports Super Sunday style kind of like, this is the most election election ever. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, they never explain why. They yeah. keep saying it's the most important election of our generation and they don't explain why, which is what you've yeah. just laid out. Yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah, that's the kind of, yeah, so Corbyn was asked by Boris Johnson, you know, whether or not free movement was going to continue. Corbyn did a kind of like, you know, kind of pretty good politicians holding answer. Mm. Boris Johnson tries to be like, come on, are you going to actually answer that? And Julie Etchingham kind of moves them on to discuss trust in politics. Now, I'm sorry. Yes, it's completely true that, you know, when you go around the country, there are a lot of people who, who deeply distrust both candidates. However, I'm sorry, it's more important to all those. I don't care whether or not those voters believe that it's more important than they see the two of them shake their hands. One of our jobs is to say, but look, actually, the real issue here is not, oh, do they shake hands? It's that they profoundly disagree <laughs> about literally almost anything you care to name. Yeah, and I do think there's a lot of... People often say politics is so divisive, it's so polarised at the moment. And while that's bad in the way that it sort of um, coarsens the tone of, uh, of people arguing with each other online, that's actually a good thing because, like you say, there's actually a choice. So that division is always presented as this thing that they have to then say platitudes to, to get over that hump and then they talk about something else. Whereas actually that divide is something that people should probably know more and more about as they make 
up their minds. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, you know, obviously, like, I mean, there are loads and loads of reasons why I think we should change our electoral system. But, you know, I obviously prefer a style of politics in which, you know, you have to build consensus and get a genuine majority to do stuff. But ultimately, yeah, if you, if you don't like that politics is divisive, someone saying, well, I promise I'm not going to be more divisive, by the way, here's my incredibly radical Brexit policy. Yeah. I promise I'm not going to be divisive. By the way, here's my plan to remake the British economy. Well, that's still divisive, right? It's just like it's just yeah. it's, it's kind of like you know it. You know, I don't know why I keep saying in the safe space of the NS podcast. <laughs> the NS podcast has you know thousands upon thousands of listeners now. But in what I still believe to be a safe space, listened to by four people and my mother, it's like what I kind of think of as the kind of like the Rory Stewart, Stewart cargo cult. You know, this thing where people are kind of like. Oh, you know, he's so reasonable. He's so, you know, so like, it's, you know, that YouGov poll showing half of people in London who are planning to vote green now saying they're going to vote mm. so like He has no environmental policies, guys. He just speaks slowly. You know, like, you know, it's just like one of those things where doing an impersonation of a reasonable person does not de facto make you a reasonable person. <laughs> and if we want more reasonable politics, we should actually ask. Yeah, harumph, harumph. In terms of the actual debate and its impact, do you think it will change anything? I just kind of think, like, I'm mean, just say universe one. Even I don't think we should really. I mean, we should, we should, we should, we should accept and have house room to the idea that the polls are completely wrong, mm. and then on election night something will happen. Then every local election result, every by election, every poll has suggested will not happen, right? But assuming that we do not live in universe one and we live in like universe two, in which the polls and you know, every scrap of data is broadly accurate and Boris Johnson is heading for victory unless something changes, then Boris Johnson won the debate. Not because he, he won. I think, kind of think, to be honest, I would struggle. to. I feel that if you said to me, look, I think that Jeremy Corbyn won the debate, I feel like, OK, fine. Not, not in a kind of wanting a quiet life kind of way, but <laughs> simply believe. because I just feel like it's so it's so arguable either way. Yeah, it's yeah, one of, yeah. Um, and I just kind of think that what Boris Johnson, the huge risk Boris Johnson took, because he's he's not very good at this format, as I think this showed, Corbyn is a lot better at it than, than, than he is, but what Boris Johnson needed not to happen was some moment where, you know, he said something which deeply offended people who usually vote Labour but voted to leave or maybe mm. voted for Theresa May last time. Or if Jeremy Corbyn, you know, did something particularly inspiring or impressive or if he ended up wiggling. Or, you know, if you think about last time, right, OK, where well, there wasn't a one on one. But if yeah. you think about like there is no magic money tree to that, I think, was she a nurse or was she a midwife? Then, yeah, that kind of a moment like that where you go, Oh, oh, you really shouldn't have said that. <laughs> and there just was no equivalent to that. And so I think Boris Johnson sort of came out better for it. What mm-hmm. did you think? Well, I thought, so I know that we know that Boris Johnson is not good at those formats because of what you've what you've just said and because he doesn't listen and because he's gaff prone, etc. But I think in general, someone who sort of doesn't follow these things as nerdily as we do probably assumes Boris Johnson's the one who's good at talking. Jeremy Corbyn is a bit, you know camera shy or not not you know doesn't speak in sound bites and isn't quite as uh, fluent maybe just because of that sort of veneer of of charm that boris johnson yeah has, and, and the thing know. is supporters club in the media and also yeah. the kind of almost comic level of not briefing the media than they were the under yeah yeah exactly yeah so i think people will assume you know <coughs> boris johnson is better at these things so when i was watching bbc breakfast this morning and they were saying oh you know it was a draw. Neither neither landed a fatal blow, but, you know, neither completely disgraced themselves. I think that a lot of people might be surprised that Jeremy Corbyn can draw with Boris Johnson. I know that doesn't say great things about J- Jeremy Corbyn's popularity, but I have a feeling that that maybe that 
even Jeremy Corbyn sort of doing that debate with Boris Johnson might sort of change his standing in the eyes of some voters? I don't know. Well, what I thought was interesting about the post-debate poll, right, was it was a statistical draw, 51% for Boris Johnson, 49% for Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, margin of error, of course, means that, you know, that is... That's a draw. That's a draw. And actually, when you looked at the detail of the poll, that draw was, you know, a third of Labour voters were like, I think Boris Johnson won. A good chunk of Remainers were like, I thought Boris Johnson won. Yeah, or I thought Boris Johnson sounded more fluent on Brexit. Mm. There was there was a great willingness across the partisan divide to go, I think so-and-so. Yeah. Now, what I think is significant about that, right, is... So Clegg thought he'd lost the second debate in 2010. He left the stage and basically thought he'd blown it. He thought Gordon Brown had had a stronger debate. Of course, no voters watching believed that because they had reached a firm opinion on Gordon Brown. A ditto, many people in Clegg's circle thought in 2014 he had won the first debate with Nigel Farage. They all thought he had lost the second debate. <laughs> but of course, although the second debate poll showed him losing by more... According to the on-the-whistle poll of both the Clegg-Farage debates, Clegg lost right. both times. Now, what I think is striking about the public coming up with what I think, you know, I think anyone watching that without an axe to grind would go, statistical draw feels about fair. Yeah. And I think what would be a great source of comfort to me, if I were Jeremy Corbyn, would be if, um, you know, if, if the public had turned around after that debate and gone for either, for either candidate... 60-40 declared a winner because yeah. that would just not have been correct. That would only have been a, I dislike you, yeah, I am committed yeah. to disliking that's, that's, you. Yeah. And and so the other thing is I think I think kind of some of the people looking at the headline figure and going, oh, this shows he's, Remainers still think he's their guy. If you look at the underlying numbers, it doesn't. What it does show is that broadly, right, because the, the fascinating thing is Gordon Brown was obsessed with this idea and if you were in power for seven, if you were in the public eye for seven years, people got sick of you. Mm. Jeremy Corbyn has been in the public eye for, for four years. He's yeah. a well-known figure now. Boris Johnson, of course, has been a well-known figure for yonks. Yeah. And yet it doesn't seem like the electorate has yet decided to kind of do the sort of like, um, yeah, I mean, it's this other thing, right? Then if I were to say, actually, I think then the best adult skills policy proposal I've seen recently is from, you know, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change or whatever it's now called. And you said, oh, no, actually, I think that um, the, the New Economics Foundation one is much better. People would, would reach opinions on that, having not read either of those plans I just made up out of the... But because one of them is a... Blairite think tank yeah. and one of them is a Corbynite think tank, then people have just, just have a, a pre-potted view about it. And yeah, I think the lack of a pre-potted view is striking to me. Yeah. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So, Anoush, you've just got back from East Devon? Yeah. Where Claire Wright, a woman who I realise I really struggle not to say Claire Wright-ind, because that is her Twitter <laughs> handle. 
has been over the last three elections, two elections, yeah. been kind of just very quietly fighting this very effective campaign, right, where they've basically, yeah, they've won councillors because of discontent with the local council. Yeah, and she basically now is the, I mean, not unchallenged, other parties are, you know, both Labour and the Dems are running, but, you yeah. know, from a meaningful sense, she is the, if you do not want a Conservative MP in East Devon, Claire Wright is the only game in town. Yeah. And yeah, so you went on the campaign trail with her and with... Uh, oh, and also the incumbent Hugo Soir is standing down. Yes, Which yeah. is, usually makes it harder for a party to hold because, yeah, everyone's got a kind of slight so-and-so help me with my exactly. landlord slash immigration status slash... Yes, yeah. yes. And the new Tory candidate who's replacing him was only selected about a week ago. So mm. he's very new, very fresh, and people don't know him. So that's why we thought it was interesting to go down there and have a look at what was going on. East Devon District Council was lost by the Conservatives for the first time ever since it was created in the 70s to no overall control, which was because of the independent surge. So there's sort of like this independent revolution going on in East Devon. And it, really, if you wanted the Conservatives not to get in again in East Devon, which they've represented for over 150 years, then Claire Wright is the only alternative. There's no sort of like, there's no suggestion that any other party going by the numbers from the previous two elections could could win there. So it's really interesting. I asked her sort of how she managed to get, because it's quite rare in this country for an independent to sort of win without having been a member of a main political party before or some, something like that to have kind of that name recognition and sort of party recognition. So it's very rare. And she sort of told me that she's been sort of plugging away at local politics for a really long time. She's been, you know, a councillor for 10 years and sort of basically being a thorn in the side of all of the power bases in in that part of the country. And what was really interesting is seeing her campaigning compared to going around with candidates of other parties was how nice it is to be independent and not be asked about your party leader or your party's baggage every time the door opens. So literally, she'd open the door, they'd ask her who she was, and then they were talking about policy in half a second, which... I don't know what you found, Stephen, but it's quite it's a bit rarer with um, Labour candidates, particularly because a lot of people want to talk about Jeremy Corbyn and Conservative candidates because people will say they either agree or disagree with the with the Brexit policy. So that was really different and really yeah. interesting to see. They genuinely think that they can beat the Tories there, which would be sort of an interesting outcome on election night if that happens. And the Conservative candidate. You know, he was he was saying, you know, it is a fight and um, it could be good to have a fresh face after Hugo Swire. But what you said, lots of people would say, oh, he helped me with this. He helped me with that. So it's sort of the first place that I've been to where the Conservatives, you know, have been have been sort of a bit more realistic about their chances and sort of conceded that their their opponents are formidable. And also in terms of people's views, it was very different from other places I've been. There was a lot more ambiguity about what people want to vote for considering it's a it has been a safe conservative seat lots of different views about brexit first time i've heard people say that they'd like article 50 revoked i haven't heard anyone say they'd like that policy anywhere else i've been and also sort of accepting claire wright's policy of a second referendum as sort of fair play and like you can't say fairer than that and that kind of thing yeah i think it's interesting because yeah i think one of the things that we've argued about as a team is the relative effectiveness or, or not of the revoke position yeah, in a way, right, ultimately, it's effectiveness is people don't take it seriously, right? It's purely a like, oh, they're willing to remain. Mm. It's ineffectiveness as it draws attention to the Lib Dems' big problem in this election, which is that unless there is a truly remarkable shift in the polls, Joe Swinson is not going to be Prime Minister, which means that the only way to, to achieve her aim of stopping Brexit, she either has to do a deal with the Labour Party, 
suggesting that imperils their hopes of gaining seats or do a deal with Boris Johnson, which, I mean, one, Boris Johnson ain't going to do a deal to stop Brexit or have a second referendum, <laughs> pull the other one, it plays old Ode to Joy. But, um, <laughs> but also, crucially, to get too near to Boris Johnson imperils the gaining of Labour votes. Now, of course, even though their tar- constituency targets are Conservative-held, they need lab- they need some at least some Labour votes to pull that off. In fact, most of their vote- the votes they need are you know, Labour, ex-Labour or anti-Tory votes. So the problem is, is it kind of made sense as a like, look, you know, we really are the, the biggest, baddest remainers on the block. But <laughs> it, it also kind of went, hey, look, you remember how, basically with the exception of, and it's not so much the Lib Dem core, but with the exception of the bit of the Lib Dem vote, which is the hardest for anyone to get off in, in the unique context of this election, most voters don't fear them equal, fear Corbyn and Johnson equally. They fear one and maybe they dislike the other. Mm. In some cases, they're enthusiastic about one and they fear the other. But there are yeah. very few voters who are genuinely <clears throat> sort of fine to sit in the middle between the two. I, out of interest, I mean, how does the kind of national stuff play? Does it play at all? You know, are there people who say, well, I'd like to vote Claire Wright, but, you know, I desperately want Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn, etc., etc.? It was interesting because there was not that much talk of the of, of what you're saying, like, oh, well, I'd, I'd, I'd prefer to see Labour in power or I'd prefer to see the Conservatives in power because of Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn, that kind of thing. I'd say one thing about this election is that there's a very high knowledge of politics mm. at the moment, national but also local as well. Pretty much every door that Claire Wright knocked on, people recognised her and knew who she was. She's only run in 2015 and and 2017 but people really knew her and so people were generally talking about what they were going to vote for in terms of the local political picture rather than the national so there were people who were saying oh you know I'd, I'm not sure about Boris Johnson but I could never vote Labour so may, maybe Lib Dem and then she'd have to explain well they can't win here and that's the big sort of challenge for for someone like Claire Wright or equally for other candidates, remain-minded candidates in other seats where Lib Dems are going to take some of their votes and it's a close-run thing. And that's one of the examples of where I think this sort of, this Unite to Remain, Remain Alliance stuff has really fallen down because in a seat like that, it should be sort of obvious what the local Lib Dems should have done. And it's clear that there's been some kind of miscommunication between the National Party, the Unite to Remain sort of group and and the people running on the ground because really, I mean, when you put her name into the sort of tactical voting best for Britain thing, then when you put the constituency in, she's the one who comes up, yet it hasn't been one of the seats where one of these arrangements has been made. So I think... (laughs) You know, it is one of those seats that highlights the sort of disorganisation or maybe the miscommunication, to put it politely, in the, in that Remain Alliance kind of world. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess it's like one of the problems that the Remain Alliance has had is that the parties involved are... Well, so there are two problems. One is the parties involved are all ultra-democratic in terms of, yeah. well, this is like the fun a fun bit of rule bookery because if you're the Lib Dem leadership and you want your MP, your local candidate, to stand down... There's no button you can pull yeah. to make them stand down. Yeah, they down. can't. However, if you're a local Lib Dem party and you want to stand down and the leadership doesn't want that, there is a button they can press. <laughs> yeah, Canterbury being, yeah, there yeah. is a button where they can just be like, nope, sorry. <laughs> um, obviously, the second problem is that, yeah, I mean, there's so much disingenuousness written about Labour and the Lib Dems and a tactical voting pact, but we should save that for this week's You Ask Us.
And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. And the question that we've been asked by multiple people this week is basically, why can't Labour and the Liberal Democrats reach a pact, often phrased, depending on the, the politics of our <laughs> listener, in a much more loaded way about <laughs> one of those parties? I mean, yeah, Nush, why? Yeah, I mean, it is sort of... <laughs> it's baffling to people who want to be who want to remain isn't it i mean and i think that's fair enough we've got a stupid voting system and i understand why people think that parties should work together to represent their views against the sort of this sort of tory block of people who are going to vote brexit you know i understand it but historically it's just not a thing in this country really party pacts apart from the recent coalition really in modern politics are just not not really a thing when you're running for an election i mean locally you you get a few agreements the greens have stood down against Pfizer Shaheen and Chingford and Woodford Green but that was sort of a local local arrangement done over coffees and chats in the constituency because they sort of agreed with some of her views and she agreed with some of their policies so it can happen sort of like that but on a national level those kind of agreements just traditionally haven't happened and that's because of party politics and because of the the way that the the way that elections are run in this country and clearly neither party has deemed this current divide remain leave divide as as a reason to change that yeah i mean i think is i think there's been a lot of knowing disingenuousness from the tops of political parties and yeah. sort of the un, unthinking parroting of that by activists right so i mean one right there's this kind of bait and switch that like the the Labour Party loves to go, look, there's more to life than Brexit. Yeah. Until someone runs against a Labour candidate who's also a Remainer. The Lib Dems love to be like, Brexit's really important until they go, oh, but wait, what about all of this other important stuff with which we disagree uh, <laughs> with Jeremy Corbyn, either personally or politically? And the thing is, right, is both of those things are true. But the reality is, is the reason why they don't is because they are political parties who, you know, they are national parties who compete Yes, primarily against the Conservatives in both cases, but also against one another. But yeah. also, crucially, like, there is no way to do it that doesn't somehow... So like, let's take, say, like the, the argument a lot of people make, then, but why don't Labour just stand down in Richmond Park? Yeah. And Well, if you are the Labour Party and you stand down in Richmond Park, Isha and Walton, let's park the argument about whether or not that constituency is in play or in, indeed in London, uh, then um, <laughs> you immediately free up quite a lot of Lib Dem campaigning camp capacity to come down the road, make your life difficult in Vauxhall, Hornsey and Wood Green, Hampstead and Kilburn, right? Well, now, it's perfectly fine to think that a Lib Dem MP is a downgrade or an upgrade in, in those seats, but... Um, why should the Labour Party make its life harder? Ditto, if you are the Liberal Democrats and you do a deal with the Labour Party, you make it much harder for you to hit your targets in places like Winchester and Guildford, where the message from the Tory incumbent becomes they did a deal with Corbyn. Yeah. So it's not in their interests either. And also, if they stand down in seats, even if you imagine for a moment that you have a Paddy Ashdown, early period Tony Blair level of ideological alignment between the two, it's still not in the Lib Dems or Labour's interests because all you end up doing in that situation, depending on the part of the country you're in, right, because with essentially the exception of, I really think basically Oxford, West and Oxford East are probably the only examples where this is this was once true, right? So in 1987 through to 1997, through really to 2001, it was massively in both parties' interest mm. to just be like, 
you go that way, I go that way. Yeah. But that's not true anymore. Now that would basically involve the Labour Party basically saying, don't worry, <laughs> we will turn your LibCon marginal into a safe Liberal seat, and then you can spend all the money and time you like trying to get rid <laughs> on of our, us. On our seat, yeah. yeah. Whereas mostly, there is no part of the country where that doesn't involve one party going, we've sat down and we've decided we're going to make it easier for you to hurt us. And yeah. they're parties who aspire to win and hold power. And I think... That have their own worldviews and yeah. you know, policy platforms. I do think part of the, like, why don't they just do a deal chat is a kind of subconscious imbibing of this kind of meme that in British politics it's illegitimate for anyone other than the Tories to do politics. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I do think that's that's really true. And, and also, I think one of the um, problems with this doing a deal thing is also for voters. I mean, I've spoken to people who have been a bit confused about why such and such party won't be on the ballot paper this time. And I think that's a bit unfair, you know. I mean, if we do, if we do run this, this system, then... <laughs> I mean, it's even more unfair to take away people's options because we've basically got this voting system that pr- it prefers a two-party kind of race. But then you start taking people's options away and you're, you're removing even more of their their sort of power. So I think I think if you think about it from the voters' perspective, it's it's although there's an appetite for it among Remain voters, it's just not very fair either, and it can be quite confusing as well. You've been listening to the New States and Podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague Anusha Kellyan. It's recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is still Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you very much for all of your lovely feedback about last week's podcast. We will aim to do the full cast as a matter of course most weeks. This week, Patrick and Alva are both in uh, Scotland and Northern Ireland, respectively. But we will return to our all-singing, all-dancing, Robinson family-style grouping next week. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.